You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and out tip-off. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. It's winter, and you can now get almost anything you need for the coldest months of the year delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a ski slope delivered, but you can get dish soap delivered. Sunshine, that's a no. But a bottle of wine, that's a yes. A snow angel, sorry, no, but angel hair pasta. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol and select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Tell someone you're listening to this podcast. Right now, tell someone. I'll wait. What do they say? (laughs) No, let me guess. You know that stuff's fake, don't you? It's what every wrestling fan has heard from every non-wrestling fan in their life for as long as they can remember. Those eight little words, or seven if you're one for contractions, those words haunt every wrestling fan's existence. Not because they don't know that it's staged, because we do, at least from the age of nine or ten, it's staged and that's the point. That's why we love it. But it haunts us because of the implicit disdain, the looking down your nose at us, the failure to engage in good faith. Granted, it's less of an issue now, in the age of the Kardashians and phony Twitter accounts, than it was in, say, 1985. But for the record, let's get this out of the way up top. Yes, we know this stuff isn't real real. Except here's the thing, it kind of is. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Shoemaker. So yeah, we know the outcomes are predetermined. We know this isn't sport in its purest sense, but it is a competition for fans' attention, for our affection or hatred, for, for the right to stand in the spotlight. This is what makes pro wrestling so cool. It's fully interactive. It's the only sport where being a fan really, truly matters. And part of being a wrestling fan is acting like it's real, especially when you're in the crowd at a live event. And the implicit deal with the people putting on the show is that they will act like it's real. We'll cheer and we'll boo as long as you give your whole life over to the role. It's like method acting if the method is suplexes and headbutts. Now, listen, you would never go to a play and nudge the guy next to you and say, you know, this stuff isn't real, right? Pro wrestling is like a play, a violent play, except there's no credits, there's no playbill, and there's no curtain call at the end where the cast takes a bow. Well, well, except for one time. This is WWE Monday Night Raw on October 6th, 1997. Shawn Michaels, the wrestling world's preeminent jackass and probably its best wrestler, is in the ring. He beat The Undertaker the night before in a Hell in the Cell match, so he and his buddy Triple H are ready to gloat. But let me ask you a question. Who is the man? Me. Who is 
show stopper, me. Who is the main event? Me. And what is the greatest force in professional wrestling today? The Click. Ah, The Click. That's K-L-I-Q, by the way, because everything in 90s wrestling was spelled with a Q or a Z or a double X and written in heavy metal spray paint font. The Click was five men. Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Shawn Waltman. Michaels was the cocky ringleader. Nash was a seven-foot-tall smartass. Hall was a laid-back, tough guy playing a hairy-chested Scarface knockoff. Triple H was the designated driver. And X-Pac, well, he was the kid brother. Five guys who loved pro wrestling and who looked at the thing they loved and recognized that it was laughably out of date. In 1996, pro wrestling, WWE in particular, was, well, kind of silly. And the clique weren't shy about pointing it out. If they thought they were too cool for wrestling, which was the reputation they had backstage, well, they kind of were. The big thing about the clique, though, is that they had WWE owner Vince McMahon's ear. Vince liked them. And even if he recognized that they were jackasses at times, and even if he didn't always do what they wanted him to do, the Click had a lot of sway, and they were roundly despised in the locker room for that. But Click was also briefly the working title of the on-screen trio who would go on to be known as the much more marketable Degeneration X, Michaels, Triple H, and China. Rick Rude was the fourth member of DX. I don't mean to leave him out, but it really doesn't matter here. That trio, Michaels, Triple H, and China, that's who Michaels is referring to here when he says click. And the deeper implication is intentional because in character, Shawn Michaels' sole mission was to antagonize Vince McMahon. He was the company's owner who wasn't entirely open about his ownership of the company. Vince's character mostly was play-by-play -play commentator. For years, it was an open secret that he was the boss, but on screen, he was rarely seen as the power broker. So Sean, and I have to repeat this, in character, is needling Vince by trying to pull back the curtain and expose him as the wizard. Because what could be more obnoxious than pantsing the entire operation? But innuendo is one thing. This night, Sean takes it a step further, or like a million steps. He asks for the production team to play highlights of his win the night before. It was pretty standard fare. Now I know we don't have any brain surgeons in that truck, but this is a television studio per se. Do you think, Vince McMahon, you could get one of those idiots in your truck to send out my yes. performance? But then, rather than Michael's Undertaker footage, the audience instead sees this grainy camcorder film of four guys embracing in the ring, inside a steel cage. Four big, beefy dudes hugging. That bad blood, here we go. Right, here's what? bad blood. Wait a minute. What? Oh my God, what is that? Wait, that's not bad, that's not that's, bad blood. That's, that's Madison Square Garden. That's May 19th, Madison Square Garden. This is you, Sean. And that, that's, that's Razor. And, and Big Daddy Cool Diesel. But who's that? Who? That's you, Triple H. Wait a minute. That's, hey, what is this? you were a bad guy. I was a good guy. You were a good guy. You were, what are you doing in the... That's... Wait a minute. I think we've seen enough. Wait a minute. That's a... That was supposed to be Vince McMahon's biggest day. The first time Madison Square Garden had been... So, oh, it's off the street. Oh, Vin Man, what's the matter? 
That subject's still a little too sensitive for you, Vin Man. Vinny Mac, what's the matter? Come on, what's the matter? Is your dad rolling over in his grave? McMahon, playing the role of announcer, is seated at the announce table beside the ring, and he is just stone-faced. He quietly tells the production team, again, this is live on the air, whether or not it's supposed to be in character is up for grabs, but he tells the production team to go to commercial. There's an old truism in pro wrestling that no matter how crazy it seems, if you're seeing it on TV, it's supposed to happen. But even if that was supposed to happen, what happened on that tape that they showed? Well, that was certainly not supposed to happen. That grainy footage was of one of the most pivotal moments in pro wrestling history. Some people ominously call it the MSG incident, but most folks just call it the curtain call. It was Madison Square Garden, May 19th, 1996. It was a house show, meaning it wasn't televised. And MSG, well, it had been the center of the WWE universe all the way back to when it was Vince McMahon's dad's company, the WWWF. It had been the seat of pro wrestling in the Northeast even before that. When people in the business talked about WWE, they, they used to call it New York, as in, I got a job offer from New York, or Johnny's going to work up in New York. And Madison Square Garden was the beating heart of New York wrestling. WWE and MSG have been intertwined since forever. There's no more important venue in WWE history. The card that night in May 96 featured Razor Ramon, that's Scott Hall's persona, versus Hunter Hearst Helmsley, that's Triple H, and in the main event, Shawn Michaels versus Big Daddy Cool Diesel, that's Kevin Nash, inside a steel cage. It also just happened to be Razor and Diesel's last night with the company. They had both accepted deals to go to work for rival company WCW, so they were leaving. Waltman, by the way, was in rehab at this point, so he's sort of written out of the story for the night. And so to say goodbye to each other and to the fans, these four best friends, the clique, decided to take a literal bow in the ring at the end of the night. This despite the fact that Michaels and Razor were good guys, baby faces in wrestling lingo, and Diesel and Triple H were heels, those are the bad guys. There was no storyline reason for them to be together in a ring at all. And they wanted to go out there and celebrate together after they'd just gotten done fighting each other. Suffice it to say, this sort of thing never happened. But at that time, oh my God, it was sacrilege. That's Triple H. These days, most people know him as WWE's Executive Vice President of Global Talent Strategy and Development. But back in 1996, Triple H was a wrestler, not a super duper star, but a certifiable star on the rise. He's come a long way. All the old timers, and I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion, but to guys that had spent their careers and their lives fighting over kayfabe and trying to, to prove that it was real. And most of those stories, a lot, not all of them, but a lot of them are trumped up about guys. And I, you know, I in my life in bars fighting over the legitimacy of kayfabe. I'm like, no, you didn't. You didn't fight anyone. Kayfabe. If you're a wrestling fan, you know kayfabe. You practically live kayfabe. If you're not a wrestling fan, and if you're not, thank you for listening, you need to know kayfabe. Kayfabe is the system of presenting the unreal as reality. 
It's the code by which all people in the wrestling industry live. It's wrestling's secret handshake. It's the beating, cheating heart of pro wrestling. In the old days, there are legends of wrestlers literally fighting to defend this industry code. Somebody comes up to a wrestler in a bar and says, you're one of them pretend wrestlers, ain't you? And legend says that wrestler was honor bound to prove to that guy that he was legit, as in beat the shit out of him. Day to day though, there were more practical applications. You know, good guys and bad guys, baby faces and heels, they couldn't be seen together in restaurants or bars or drive together from town to town. If a wrestler's character didn't speak English, he wouldn't speak English in public. If a wrestler was storyline injured on TV, he had to limp around on crutches when he took his kids to school. As pro wrestling evolved, or as the world evolved moreover, and the WWE ring was full of wrestling clowns and plumbers and aliens, the idea that wrestling was real was laughable. But the code of kayfabe, especially to old timers, was still to be protected at all costs. In the locker room, the code was legislated mostly by the old guard, guys like on-screen manager Jim Cornette and announcer Jim Ross, as well as tradition-minded wrestlers like The Undertaker. If there was ever a breach of protocol, they would lose it. Cornette was in that group and a lot of people, and they were all, you know, it's funny because a lot of times so those things would happen and Vince would be totally fine with it. But then they would get to Vince and, you know, talk to him about these guys are taking a shit on you and they're disrespectful. And so then it would become a problem. So that takes us to that night in May 96. Kevin Nash and Scott Hall are leaving the company and the guys in the clique decide they wanted to do something to commemorate the moment. And of course, they wanted to do it on the biggest stage of all, Madison Square Garden. It was the first time in a long time that we had, were back to having a sellout uh, in Madison Square Garden. We had gone through some relatively lean years, and that was one of the biggest gates we'd had in a long time at Madison Square Garden. So, yeah, certainly all of those things added to the mystique and the aura of what eventually became the curtain call. That's the voice of Shawn Michaels, the heartbreak kid, the main event, the showstopper, Mr. WrestleMania. These days, he helps run NXT, which is WWE's developmental league. In 1996, though, uh, he was a wrestler and he was an absolute jackass. Youth, fame, illicit substances, there are a lot of reasons. Shawn's general disposition in those days is as legendary as his in-ring achievement. But again, I think that goes back to the a number of you know, young guys living in the moment and not really having that much <laughs> forethought in their lives. Youth, youth has that effect on you. Triple H sees it the same way. This is your family that you're driving up and down the road on, even more so than a lot of those guys, you know, had kids and wives and all that stuff. But we spent way more time with them. So th there's this really super close knit group and Kevin and Scott are leaving and it's emotional for everybody. Look, there, there were certainly, it was Madison Square Garden that added, of course, to the ambiance. So that night at the garden, Sean approached Vince McMahon and asked if they could do something out of the ordinary, an in-ring goodbye to their friends at the end of the night, a final bow, if you will. Now, there's some dispute over whether Vince actually gave them his blessing or not, whether it was a pre-planned moment or an act of outright rebellion. Michael says he got permission. We wouldn't have done it otherwise. In his defense, though, I don't think he grasped what it would, one, evolve into. And I also don't think that he really thought it would get the backlash 
that it did from the former legends um, who had worked so hard to uh, to keep that, as they, we call it in the wrestling business, to keep that kayfabe alive. But of course, Michaels was there. He was part of it. So to get a slightly more outside point of view, I called his buddy Sean X-Pac Waltman, the fifth Beatle of the clique, who wasn't there that fateful night. I understand the anger. I mean, because it just goes against everything, you know, that's instilled in us coming up in the industry and in the business, you know? Uh, so, and I get it, man. And especially the guys that like, you know, the guys that have been around for a really long time. And then, I mean, he was like, you know, stone cold. He was pissed, you know? And I, I mean, I don't blame them the way everything was at the time, but like it was a bunch made about not that big a deal in my opinion, as far as like, uh, Kayfabe is dead now. Kayfabe was already dead. Give me a break. Here's Triple H. Sean went and spoke to Vince and came out and said, talk to Vince and, hey, Vince is cool with us having a moment in the ring, all of us together after the show is over. You know, once that last match goes down and I was like, wow, how are we going to do that? Because it was kind of a weird situation. Triple H and Razor Ramon have their match in the next to last slot. Then comes the main event with Michaels and Diesel in the cage. As the match ended, Triple H was standing behind the entrance curtain with Razor. And Scott looked at me and he said, are we doing something on the end of this match? And I was like, yeah, I'm not really sure. Sean sort of said something about it to me. Did he mention it to you? He said, yeah. He said, come out at the end of the match. We're all going to do something in the ring. So we watched the match go down. And then we kind of sort of got to the end. And Scott was like, man, are we supposed to go out there? And I said, I'm not really sure. And he, Vince kind of leaned back into the conversation. And Scott was like, Sean said we're supposed to go out there. Am I supposed to go out there? And Vince kind of shrugged his shoulders. Never has a shrug made so much noise. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class, leading passenger space, and clean, thoughtful design, and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. What started off as a why not kind of moment immediately revealed itself to be a kayfabe Pandora's box. As Michaels, Nash, Hall, and Triple H embraced in the ring, the crowd was simultaneously excited and confused and altogether exhilarated. Sure, for some of them, even though they knew wrestling was staged, they didn't understand the backstory of this moment. If you didn't know any better, you'd think you were watching the formation of a new in-ring faction, not the dissolution of a real-life one. But this was New York City, though, and there were lots of people in the crowd who knew what was going on. The ones who read the websites and the dirt sheets and called the hotlines, they knew that Hall and Nash were on the way out, and they knew they were seeing something special. For the old-timers backstage, what they were seeing was pure, unadulterated sacrilege. When the clique came back from the ring, they walked into a ghost town. Man, when we came back, everybody was gone except for Vince, you know, and when, but Vince was down at the end of the hallway. And uh, so I remember walking back and seeing nobody and thinking, well, that's not a good sign. And Vince is still standing there. Sean went over to him and Sean started talking to him. The rest of us didn't. And, uh, you know, from there, it was kind of the, what did Vince say? Was he pissed? And he was like, well, he seemed fine with it. You know, he asked me, he said, did that mean a lot to you? And Sean said, it meant the world to me. And he said, okay, then. And that was it. And uh, people were losing their minds. You know, I remember us all talking about it. Like, that was crazy. And that level of 
just exposure live in a show, especially at the Garden, right, was like, holy shit, what just happened? They all left, drove home. Triple H went all the way to New Hampshire, where there was a message waiting for him. So I called the officer and said, Vince wants to see you first thing tomorrow morning. I was like, <laughs> this is not going to be good. I had to turn around and drive right back to the office. And of course, then, you know, everybody knows the rest of the story from there. Hall and Nash leave the company. Sean was the champion, and Vince wasn't about to strip him of the title. So Triple H was left to take the fall. Here's what Vince told him. Look, this was totally not what I was expecting. Everybody's up in arms about it. Everybody. And I can't have it. It just, it looks like you guys are undermining everything and you can just do whatever you want. There's no repercussions and it'll just undermine the whole thing. And a lot of people want me to fire you. Part of me thinks I should fire you. One of Vince's famous quotes, you're going to have to learn to eat shit and like taste of it. You're going to have to learn to eat a lot of it. And, you know, you're winning the, the king of the ring. Not going to happen. You're going to go down to the bottom. We're going to have to start over and you're going to get shit on for a while. The plan had been for Triple H to win the upcoming King of the Ring tournament. More on that next episode. And as a punishment, Vince just tore up those plans. Hunter was going back to the bottom of the pecking order. But Sean? Sean was bulletproof. I guess I always wonder what in the world made me untouchable. Other than I was the, the champion at the time. But I've seen him just take the championship off of guys <laughs> after, you know, what, what he wants to, and then, you know, unceremoniously dismiss them afterwards. Perhaps unsurprisingly, X-Pac had a different take. I thought Sean probably could have done more to keep Hunter from having to be in the doghouse for so long. You know, let, I mean, let's just be honest. But Sean was at a different place back then. Sean said that he doesn't, today, Sean says that he doesn't really understand why he couldn't have gotten punished. Does that make sense? Oh, like he's like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Man, fucking break. <laughs> I love him to death, but come on. <laughs> and that was the thing, is those guys were leaving. Nothing he could do to them. Sean was champ. Really nothing he could do to him. You know, he was sort of the top babyface in the moment, right? Did that come up in the meeting with Vince? Like, by the way, Sean's not getting punished at all because I can't. What am I going to do to him? Or is he that never point blank said that. But, like, he did say, like, look, Kevin and Scott aren't here. There's nothing I can do to them. It, he didn't have to say the Sean thing. I got that. He's got a guy... I'm up and coming. He's got a guy making the money on top. He can't just kill that. We I mean, could have, but it would have been bad for business at a point in time where we were trying to do everything we could to get business going. You can have an influence or you can have a relationship uh, with the boss, but you also have to be real careful about putting him in a tough position and putting him in a position that's, even though he may feel one way personally from a business standpoint, he has to conduct himself differently. I think during the period of time while we were out there, everybody was losing their mind and, you know, up one side of him and down the other about the whole thing. I think at that point he was trying to, well, I, I don't know. I think at that point he was trying to determine how he felt about it. You know, Vince is not a jump to conclusions guy, contrary to a lot of people's belief, I guess. But I believe that, you know, once we left, I'm sure he got phone calls that night and I'm sure when he got, you know, we're home the next day. I'm sure everybody was all over him and it just, it, it blew up. Again, he's the guy that obviously went out on the first, you know, public airwaves and sort of telling everyone that the WWE was uh, sports entertainment. And that again, it was more about the entertainment than it was the so-called realism of it. And what this was, and also that time, again, we, we were certainly a generation that felt that, 
respectfully, in, in our minds, it was you know, we felt we were insulting the viewers trying to convince them that it was something that it wasn't and that fan base was much more sophisticated sometimes than we give them credit for. Insulting. That's the word that keeps coming up. Michaels and the rest of the clique thought that the current presentation was insulting to the fans. The old guard of kayfabe, the so-called protectors of the business, they thought that displays like the curtain call were the ultimate insult. So who was really being insulted here? The traditionalist diehards or the modern fans who could see through it all? It might not be an either or, but it's important because like I said, pro wrestling at its very core is interactive. The performers and the fans work together in this seamless sort of symbiosis. These two forces were going to have to square their grievances and find a way to work together. Maybe the answer was right in front of them. The fans at MSG. See, they weren't your usual fans. They were, as they say in the business, smart fans. Triple H says they were the fans who really knew what was going on. We used to joke like the, the garden, that, that area, right? They saw so much stuff. You really had to work to get a big reaction in the garden. And, and you, had to, you had to put in some time and pay your dues and get, get to get that reaction. Um, they didn't just react if you, you know, oh, he's on TV, he's going to push, hey, you know, whatever. It, it wasn't like that. But, but, you know, all the shouting that you heard and all the people that were there, like it was very insider. If you'll indulge me for a second, when I was a kid, my friend told me a story about going to a house show with his dad. This is before the giant stage entrances they have today, when they would just have a big curtain set up that the wrestlers came through. At one point, somebody came through the curtain and just whipped it, and it flew open, and for one brief second, you could see that backstage, just to the left of the entrance, Hillbilly Jim and the Iron Sheik were standing side by side, watching the show together. This is one of the most popular baby phases and one of the most reviled heels, just chumming it up like it was no big deal. You know what else happened that night? I don't know. My friend never told me, or if he did, I forgot, because it doesn't matter. What matters was the moment where the curtain was literally pulled back and the thing that we already knew was finally exposed for the fans to see. The way my friend told the story, everybody booed. And of course they did, because that slip-up broke the handshake deal between the fans and the performers. But I guarantee they all went home and told everybody they knew about it. That was a decade before the MSG incident. By 1996, everybody knew what was going on. The fans knew the stuff happening off-screen, outside the ring, was a lot of times more interesting than the stuff that happened between the bells. The WWE was in bad shape. The whole business was in bad shape. And the way forward wasn't to double down on the facade. It was to lean into the inherent contradiction of the whole thing. It was to, well, pull back the curtain. Fans were already wise to what was going on anyway. At the time, it was sort of like a black market thing, right? Like an underground thing. There was no internet. There was dirt sheets a little bit. But people just chatted about the business and the insides of the business. and According to <clears throat> Wikipedia, side note, wrestling Wikipedia is amazing. A dirt sheet is a wrestling magazine, wrestling newsletter, or website that covers professional wrestling from a real-life perspective, as opposed to treating the storylines as real. Most of the pro wrestling magazines of my childhood kept kayfabe. They had fictional write-ups about the wrestlers that were approved by the talent and the promoters. But Dirt Sheets told you the stuff you really wanted to know. The real stuff. Everything from ticket sales at an event to rumors about who was next in line for a push. 
you'd go to the show and then there was some guy that knew all the insider stuff that was just telling it to everybody around him and it was spreading like wildfire. Like, it's a funny uh, thing. Like the era from before us was still so adamant about trying to tell everybody it was real and the only people they were fooling was themselves in a way. Everybody else was like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever, right? That night at MSG, there were two things happening. Four wrestlers going against the script, breaking down the fourth wall, and a crowd of diehard fans who were seeing it, who were in many ways demanding it. Those two things were happening in synchronicity because wrestling needs wrestling fans just like wrestling fans need wrestling. When wrestling fans got smart to the business, it made the business better. I liked wrestling more after my friend told me about seeing Hillbilly Jim and the Sheik palling around. As a pro wrestling fan, the curtain call was a moment of liberation. It wasn't as small as a slip up and it wasn't as pat as pulling back the curtain. It wasn't just four guys breaking the rules. It was four guys getting into the ring and raising their arms in the air and saying proudly, defiantly, you know this shit is fake, don't you? This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If I could go back in time to any moment in the past 30 years of wrestling, this night would be high on the list. I mean, I can watch Hogan beat Andre whenever I want on TV, but to be there at the garden, to feel what it was like, that's the stuff that makes wrestling fandom a magical experience. It made me wonder, who could I talk to to see what it was like at MSG that night? I mean, I know two people who were definitely there. The two guys who were recording the curtain call. The two guys with the camcorder who are the only reason we're having this conversation right now. The only reason why anyone could see what happened there. You can go back and watch their footage. If you've seen the curtain call, that's their footage. And if you listen closely, you can hear a voice right when the click raised their hands in the air. A voice screaming over the rest of the crowd saying, you know why, right? They're leaving. My name is Manny Motati. I was one of the guys that filmed the curtain call. I was the the guy that was annoying, screaming like Mark, yelling like crazy. And Jason is the one holding the camera. Yeah, hi, my name is Jason Cosmides. I attended house shows with Manny in the New York Tri-State area. I recorded the curtain call May 19th, 1996. How often did you guys go to shows and did you always go together? Most of the time we went together. We started doing it in 95 and then in 96. I mean, people can say, oh, we got lucky. We just went there for that one show and we started recording. But, you know, we did this as a hobby. So we worked together. And most of the time we went to the shows together. Explain to me the logistics of getting the camera inside. We never snuck in the camera. What me and Jason did was before we went to a house show to record what was going on in Nassau Coliseum or Madison Square Garden, 
what we did was like, hey, did you you have your camera ready? You have your two batteries ready? You have your two tapes ready? Yep, yep. And that was it. We never planned anything as far as, oh, do this, hide this, make sure we don't get caught, act cool. It's not like we were going through like airport security or anything like that. At the time, security didn't think two little 17, 16-year-old jabroni fans would come in and videotape a house show, which most of the time it's the same results, same results, same results. After the cage match, what was your first indication that something weird was happening? I, I would say probably when Razor came came out, it's like, oh wow, okay, saying goodbye, you know, this is it because we were smart marks at the time, and everybody in the garden kind of knew what was going on. You know, back then we had the hotlines, we had uh, dirt sheet writers. I myself. I had a wrestling hotline, so I had to know what was going on. I knew months and months before that Razor was leaving. I found out in January he was leaving because Howard Finkel had a wrestling hotline that he would just uh, say, oh, here's this show is coming to this town. This show is coming to this town. It wasn't really that important of, of a hotline, but I would call it. So what was mind-boggling was he actually gave it away and mentioned their real names, which really not many people knew at the time. Wait, is this the WWE hotline that you're talking about that Fink, that, that Howard Finkel was on? No, Howard Finkel had his own hotline that many people didn't know about. And it was just really a hotline that would just tell you what shows were coming up in, in the nearby towns. It was not like anything newsworthy at all, which I don't think anybody would call it except someone like me. And because I had to know everything that was going on because I had my own wrestling hotline that I had to you know give information to. And did you have to pay for that? Was it like a 900 number hotline? Uh, the Howard Finkel hotline was free. So I, it was a, it was 800 number. So yeah, we didn't have to pay for that. And did you have to, people have to pay to listen to your, what was your hotline called? My wrestling hotline was called the Wrestling War Zone. It was pretty popular for like two or three years until I stopped it. I mean, I had a wrestling hotline, a question and answer hotline, uh, and a merchandise hotline, obviously with the news line. So it, it was pretty popular. And all those were 800 numbers. So the, it got pretty popular from that. But so January, months before, you heard that they were leaving. What Was this, you said he didn't drop much news on there or like, you know, behind the scenes news. What was your reaction when you heard that? It was just very weird because obviously me, the mark that I am, I, I obviously knew who their real names were. So when he goes, by the way, Scott Hall and Kevin Lash are leaving for WCW. I don't know what led up to it when he, when he said that. But he, it was like maybe like a sentence or two. And then that was it. And he switched subjects just like that, like nothing ever happened. That was, and then I said, whoa. And then I called back again just to make sure. And then I, I called Jason right after that. Do you remember getting that call, Jason? Yeah, I, I do. And, and I, didn't, I didn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it because those guys were very, they were main eventers, you know, and very much part of the product at the time that built, you know, the new generation to what it was at that, at that point. So two top guys leaving, it was like, nah, that, that can't be true. So I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be huge if they, if they leave. We were so upset at them that they were leaving, you know, early in the night, I'm cursing them out, you know, 16 years old. I was so angry. It's like, this is our home. WWE is our home. And you guys were supposed to stick with us because, you know, this is our home. You're supposed to stay. And now you're leaving for the other guys. So we were mad until obviously the end. It was like a complete opposite. We just, okay, now we love you guys again. People are talking about this event at some point, right? People are talking about it, but not for a while. We, we went home as if it was a, a normal night. Um, 
there was no buzz about it days after or anything like that until about a year later when it aired on Raw uh, on October 6th of 97 without our consent because it was given to WWE without our consent. And uh, so we didn't know it was going to air that night. It aired and we're like, what is our footage doing on there? Wait, you didn't give, how did they get the tape? I actually uh, made a copy for uh, a so-called friend. He turned out to be a dirt sheet writer. And uh, what happened was he gave it to someone that was friends with Shawn Michaels, who then gave it to Shawn Michaels. And that's how it happened, how it got out there. And uh, so we were mad that our footage was on there. I mean, he's like, what is going on? We didn't even get, we didn't give consent to anybody. Well, I was like, hey, that's our video. What's our video doing on Raw? I remember I was home and then I got a call from Manny and he sounded like he just was, he was stunned. I remember just that conversation, like, it just like, wow, our video was on TV. Like, what what's going on now, you know? They come to ask permission for it now or are they just all bootlegging your bootleg still? Bootlegging the bootlegging is what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. You guys are both... Obviously, really big fans. 16 years old, going to multiple shows, MSG, Nassau Coliseum. Would you say that you identified as wrestling fans? We were considered the losers because back then, if <laughs> in like 94, 95, 96, if you're a wrestling fan in high school, you were considered the losers. None of the girls would like you. But for me, I would wear a Bret Hart shirt or a Shawn Michaels shirt or a Razor Moon shirt because I wanted to see what other fans were out there Besides me, what are the losers out there? Are there? And uh, Jason was one of them. I was like, oh, cool. He likes wrestling. You know, there was very few of us back then, especially during the new generation era. You know, you didn't want people to know you like professional wrestling or the WWE. You know, you know that stuff's corny. This, that, this, that. Forget about it. I didn't care about any, what anybody said. It wasn't the cool thing at that time. It wasn't. This was past the, the whole Kogan Ultimate Warrior era. It was just a different time, and there was a lot of closet fans that I that I like to say that just they watched it, but they weren't, you know, they didn't want to talk about it. It wasn't wasn't the cool thing, and it's funny how it actually became it became very cool, became very popular just a few years later, and a lot of those those superstars were were just a part of that, you know. So, did you ever hear the phrase, "You know that stuff's fake," don't you? I hate hearing that because it's it's anything but fake. I mean, you go run the ropes, you go take the bumps. I've done it. I, I know what it's like. You'll feel it and you'll feel it the next day. You, you'll feel it the next day after you, you get hurt. It's more real than anybody thinks, you know, it, it, and so, until you get in that ring, then you can tell me something different. Go, go train. And then when you come out, you tell me if that's fake. I'm sure they'll have a different opinion. We know it was scripted. I mean, and we, we just love the entertainment value about it. You know, that's what it's like how some people are just nowadays are hooked on their shows. This season, that season, you know, binge watching. It's just, I would say no different than how somebody, you know, is into soap operas. You just want to keep watching, you know, week after week to see what's next, what's going to happen next, who's going to show up next, you know. At the moment of the curtain call, do you feel like they're breaking the deal? Like, do you, is there any part of you that's like, we're, there's, we have this agreement, right? That you guys stay in character and we will stay in character for it. Like, do you feel like there's any like betrayal, even though like the smallest amount? No, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I, I lost my voice because I was yelling and screaming like a little crazy little girl the whole time. And uh, Jason was as much in shock as well. You know, he tried to keep the camera straight, but he couldn't because 
he was in it like I was, you know? It's a little bit of like, in that moment, it's them saying, like, we are not going to treat you like idiots anymore, at least, at least for the next few seconds, right? Especially in the garden. Yeah, especially in the garden. We don't want to mess with you guys. You guys already know what's going on. You know, you don't mess with, you don't mess with the garden crowd. Yeah, don't insult my intelligence, you know? This season on the Book of Wrestling is called 25 Catchphrases That Explain the Attitude Era. Rob Harvilla, your royalty check is in the mail. This being a podcast, we're leaning into the audio of the wrestling world. And in the Attitude Era, that means catchphrases. It won't be just catchphrases. There'll be famous quotes and announcer calls, and maybe even, like this episode, a memorable phrase that some jerk said to you in fifth grade. And don't worry, I'll explain everything about the Attitude Era in coming shows, but here's what's important about it. They stopped insulting our intelligence. Throughout this show, I'm going to talk to the wrestlers and backstage personalities who made the Attitude Era work, as well as fans and experts and, well, who knows, we're booking on the fly here. Next time on 25 Catchphrases That Explain the Attitude Era, Austin 316. I hope you'll check it out. So drink a cold one, flip the bird, and meet me back here every week for a new episode. See you later, humanoids. I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Fennessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian Walters, Taskmaster Troy Farkas, Cassius Freakin' Fleming, The Z-Man Dan Zampillo, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Sound design and final mixing by superstar Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. They don't need a nickname. Copy editing by Craig the Animal Gaines and fact checking by Dangerous Daniel Coma. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, AKA The Masked Man. Thanks for listening. And for the record, we actually paid Manny and Jason for their original footage.